What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp, really appreciate you tuning in. This week on the show, our guest is not only incredible, but he was just dropping knowledge. Like, this was one of those episodes where I was just thinking of all the lessons and clips that I could take away and ways I could use his information. It's so educational. And we covered this wide variety of topics from things like how important it is to build your network and how do you gain experience if you're new to the work environment or you want to switch roles? How do you build a strong team? I mean, really just a lot of cool things. So our guest is Paul English. Paul is an entrepreneur, a computer scientist, and a philanthropist. He is the co-founder and chief technology officer of Lola.com, which we'll talk about. and. He admits most people know him. He co-founded and served as the CTO of Kayak, the travel search site. Paul is also in the process of launching a new podcast app. It's called Moonbeam.fm. That's Moonbeam.fm. Go there now and you can sign up to be part of their launch. And we're going to talk about it at the end of the episode. And I think he's solving a lot of problems that exist currently in the podcasting space because he's such a fan of podcasting. Also, a shout out to those on Patreon. We had a couple of listener submitted questions, and those are at the end. If you want to be able to ask questions to our guests, you can head to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And two to five bucks a month, you get different perks. You support the show. You get access to the guests. It's a great time. Patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. All right. 
Time to turn it over to Paul. Really enjoyed this episode. Curious what you think? Let us know at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com, or you can always make it public in the new Apple podcasting app. And go ahead and leave a review there. So here's my interview with Paul English as we talk about a lot of things, including his newest venture, moonbeam.fm. Enjoy. I know you said you're big into podcasts as well. Tell us a little bit about your passion behind podcasting. Yeah, so I've been listening to podcasts for many years, 10 years or more. And um, I don't know, I just, I find it fascinating. It's kind of like, you know, I like travel. I've been working in the travel industry for many years now. And travel is fun because you can jump on a plane and be in another culture, right? So like Boston, you can fly nonstop to Tokyo. And you get off the plane, you, you get downtown, you walk around. It's a completely different world. And podcasting is kind of like that without the plane. You can just sort of turn the dial and you're exposed to different people, different values, different ideas. And I just love the diversity of people and ideas that exist on podcasts. So it's really fun. It's kind of like one of the things I do when I um, travel pre-podcast. I listened to the radio. So one time I went to Ireland and I rented a car and I drove a lot over a week, drove around the country, but I love listening to local talk radio just to see what people think, what they care about. In it's interesting that in some ways, every country is the same. Like parents want their kids to be safe and healthy, right? That's universal. But in other ways, countries are different. Like when I listened to talk radio in Ireland, I found them to be a more literate society than the U.S. People just talked about books more. And I thought that was cool and that was kind of eye-opening. And um, I don't know, podcasting is like that. It's just the world at your fingertips. You can listen, you can learn anything you want, meet anyone you want. So I just love it for the open mind part of it. I love the analogy you make around traveling. I've always felt that way. I never put my finger on exactly what it was. But you're right. You can just drop in, feel like you're right in the room with that person. And if you want over time, you build this kind of scary imaginary relationship. Yeah, yeah. But what I also like is the fact that it's taken some of the short, clippy social media tweet nature, and it's it's given us an alternative. I can't watch YouTube for more than 10 minutes. Like, that's just me. I, I watch it on 2x speed and all this. I, I love the 2x speed thing. I do as well. Yeah. So I'm kind of ADD. I shouldn't say kind of. I'm very ADD and I get distracted a lot. But YouTube 2x, I don't get distracted. It's pretty cool. I'm the same way. I was just fixing a lawnmower the other day and I watched 10 seconds on one speed and I was like, I can't do this 2x the whole way. Sadly, I do this with podcasts also, but I only do about one and a half x which is weird because then you think you know the normal cadence of people's voice, but you don't. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it's because with YouTube, you have the visual cue. Yeah. And with podcasts, you don't. It's just pure audio. And so maybe without the visual cue, you need to listen. I've learned in the pandemic that I didn't really know this before, but apparently I read lips a little bit because when people wear masks, I have a hard time hearing them. Yeah, I love that idea. And I like to sink into conversations. I mean, you know, you can have, we're going to talk for an hour. Like you could sink in. It's not a rush. When I hear people, I'm sure you've been on TV and different interviews. I hear it's like, give us three minutes of your time type thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you mentioned, I want to get into podcasting in depth, but we'll save that towards the end because what you're really known for, what I knew you from and have used a product of yours so much is kayak.com. And you mentioned how much you traveled. And this is kind of the lead in for, look, you are an extremely successful entrepreneur. I'd first love to just set the stage with, tell us about the companies you've started and the success of them. In some ways, this is going to sound like it doesn't count because we're so small, but it's very meaningful to me. In high school, I created a uh, game company and I was self-taught programmer and I developed a game. My first game was a game called Cupid. And I think I was 16 years old and I licensed it to a game company for $25,000. And to me, that's when I learned that, whoa, you can make money by coding. And that like really opened my eyes because coding was a hobby for me. And I still, I would code on the weekends if I had to pay to code. Like I just love it. I love software. And actually these days more design than coding. I just love working in the software industry. But that really opened my eyes. And then after that, you know, when I went to college, I worked full-time as a programmer for, I don't know, four or five companies. I would switch companies every year just to learn in different environments. After college, I worked for one tech company for five years called Interleaf. They did document management. And then since then, for the last 20 years, it's just been a string of startups. My first real startup was an e-commerce company called Boston Light. Our product was called QShop. And what we did is we built, you think of it as, a, as like a Shopify, it was a store builder and just very simple build a storefront for people with a shopping cart that they can list products. We ended up selling the company to Intuit and then I served as VP technology for them for almost four years and that was an awesome learning experience. I mean, I really, I love the company and the people there. After that, uh, my brother Ed and I, uh, Ed and I created a software company called Intermute and we built software our first product was called ad subtract which is to get rid of ads ah then um i led the development of a product called spam subtract which get rid of junk email and it's all around sort of security privacy we ended up selling that company to trend micro and um that was a really good outcome after that i created kayak i guess i would say kayak is my third company i spent 10 years at kayak and in the middle of kayak when we were a few years old, I created another company on the side. I'm someone that this goes along with being ADD a little bit. I have shiny object syndrome that I'm always interested in what's new, like the new, new thing and the new, new okay. people. And so I often have little side projects I work on on the weekend. I'm actually pretty disciplined where I try not to work on my day job during the weekend, okay. but I do work on my side projects. At Kayak, I had a couple side projects. One was a nonprofit. And the second one is a website that is now called gethuman.com. And gethuman. I've like heard of that. It's a customer service website. We've we've helped over 200 million people. I have. Over the years. And it's, it's like if you want to get Verizon on the phone, it's kind of crazy how hard it is to get a human on the phone when you're paying them $100 a month and they're, they're a phone company. Like you'd think they have people answering the phone. So we teach people tricks of how to get better customer service. So I'd say that was my fourth company. It's a very profitable, small company, but very profitable. A friend of mine runs that now. And then the fifth company is Lola.com. And we do business travel and expense. Business travel, as you can imagine, was the worst, you know, one of the worst possible places to be in the last year because no one traveled. But we came out with an expense product last summer that's doing really well, where we sell into small business, small mid-sized business, 
and we tell them we can get rid of expense reports completely. And we have a new type of corporate card that when people swipe the card at a restaurant, an alert pops up in their Lola app. They take a picture of the receipt. They answer a question like, what budget are you going to charge us to? And if they do that in real time, there's no expense reports ever. And we give CFOs the ability to see every penny their employees are spending, whether that's on travel, on a card, on invoicing. So we have this dashboard, which lets you control and have visibility into all your spend with dynamic budgeting. So anyway, hmm. that, that's my fifth company. And then my side project right now is in the podcast industry. I have yet another podcast player coming out in May. It's called Moonbeam. The website is moonbeam.fm. So those are all the companies I've started. I think all I right. can remember. Well, I knew, I knew if we just went down this, this uh, line of questioning here, I've got enough written down to ask for three hours of conversation. It's just the way it works. So you mentioned after college, you worked for a company for five years. You said you wanted to kind of learn some things. And this jumped out to me for a couple of reasons. One, you built a profitable, you know, 25 grand, I think you said that game in high school. Why go work for a company? Because a lot of people, a lot of the narrative today is you had just proven you have the skills, you have the ability, you can make money. And then the narrative becomes, you know, screw college. I don't need to work for anybody. Like from there on, it's entrepreneur that's in your blood. You didn't go that route. You, you went to school, then you, um, you know, went to work for a company. What was the factor behind that as opposed to, I'm just going to go start my own thing? Yeah. I mean, there are cases where people build a company right out of college or right out of high school. They drop out of college, right? Like Zuckerberg or Gates or whatever. But those are by far the exception. I think the rule is you work for a company with some really strong people and you learn from them. The most important skill for someone in their 20s is to be is to join a company where you can learn at a really rapid pace. So can you double your abilities in one year? And the way you do that is you get very selective about who you spend your time with and you try to find mentors and find people who are multifunctional that you can learn not just like how to code if you're an engineer but you can learn all aspects of whatever industry you're in and so for me i work in tech and so i wanted to learn all aspects of tech and i did that through mentors and peers that were really smart and many times i, I lecture on entrepreneurship at a bunch of colleges and a lot of times students will ask me when they graduate should they go work for like a big consulting company should they go work for google should they go work for a post-series A startup, a pre-seed startup, so they do their own thing. My advice is any of those might be the right path. If you interview at those five, four or five company types I just described, you should take the job at the one who has the smartest mentors and peers. Because especially early in your career, it's acceleration of learning, and you do that through mentors and peers. So that's more important than the size company. This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment all in one place. At Audible, you can find the largest selection of audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to business, motivation, and more. There's tons of original entertainment from top celebrity creators and thousands of popular and binge-worthy podcasts. As an Audible member, you get one credit every month good for any title in the entire premium selection, that means the latest bestseller, the buzziest new release, the hottest celebrity memoir, or that bucket list title you've been meaning to pick up. 
And these titles are yours to keep forever in your Audible library. You also get full access to the popular Plus catalog. It's filled with thousands and thousands of audiobooks, original entertainment, guided fitness and meditation, sleep tracks for better rest, and podcasts. And all of these are included with your membership, so you can download and stream all you want, no credits needed. Simply put, Audible is your playlist for life. The new Plus catalog makes Audible memberships so much more valuable and gives all members a chance to listen to and discover new favorites and new formats, like the exclusive Words Plus Music series, or a podcast you never considered before. New members can always try Audible for 30 days for free. Just visit audible.com slash smart or text smart to 500-500. Again, visit audible.com slash smart or text smart to 500-500. And now back to the episode. Would you say that that company you work for had an impact on your trajectory? Massive, yeah. Really? Had, what part? I had a few peers there. Um, Larry Bond, Joe Mahoney, Steve Pelletier, Kimbo Mundy, Ethan Jacobson. I'm just trying to think of Deborah Landsman. Um, I'm just going back. This goes this goes back decades, right? But I learned so much about leadership, really, and running teams. More important than the technical stuff. I had some good technical um peers and mentors that I learned from, but it's everything about how you sell change, right? So humans are bad at change. Um, people don't take it well when you reorg the company or kill a product and reintroduce a new product. And at this tech company I work for, it's called Interleaf again. Um, one of the things I learned about was change management. And Joe Mahoney, who was a mentor of mine, he taught me that when you have a big change coming, pre-sell it. Don't announce it to the team. Meet with team members individually one-on-one. -on -one. It's a massive amount of work. You know, for every change, you have to meet with five or 10 people one-on-one. -on -one. He said, but if you do that and look them in the eye, you get to see their reaction and you get to respond to their reaction. And sometimes in a room of 10 people, it's hard to voice your opinion. And so I really followed that rule. Um, another thing I learned from Joe is when you're making a change, it's really difficult and you're trying to decide like path number one or path number two, and you're not sure which way to go in a particular business decision. He said, just choose the one that has more integrity, uh, the one that treats people better. Ah, okay. So I was going to say, define that for us because that can, it can be an ambiguous word. So the one that is just better for humanity. Yeah. I actually, I'd love to talk about the word integrity. I have a whole thing about that word, oh, good. but, um, what I mean in that case is the one that's more honest and the one that's more consistent with your values. And if your values are taking care of people, which hopefully they are, if you're an entrepreneur running companies, um, and you and you can't decide between two decisions, just think about the one that helps your team more, that your team's more excited about. Hmm. Tell us about, you said you got a lot behind integrity. I'm interested in it. Yeah, so integrity, if you look at the word, it's used to mean a few different things. I mean, I think in chemistry or in science, it's sort of stable compounds have integrity. To me, it's like when I think about my career, integrity means consistency with values. So as an example, when I talk about design integrity, if you have a lead designer at your company, you want to let them make decisions because your product will have integrity if your lead designer believes in it and having a lead designer 
who really believes in your product, sometimes you go with the designer instead of customers. If the design, if you trust your designer and the designer feels really strongly about it, you got to go with him or her because that's what gives you integrity that it's like from one team and one person, something gets created. It's a consistency of vision, a consistency of values, a consistency of style. So that's always been really important to me is, um, just be transparent about what are your values and what are your priorities and then execute in a way that's consistent with those articulated values. It reminds me of one of the things that I teach currently is about trust. And we talk a lot about integrity. That's why I was, I was curious because defining some of these things, you know, integrity, character, if we leave it ambiguous, everybody can assign their own definition yeah. and then live by that. And there's not anything necessarily wrong with it, but I was curious in yours. So I like what you said about the myth of the college dropout founder. Yes, they exist, but I just think they get far too much hype. And in the social media world we live in, those are the ones we hear and see. Um, go learn from somebody. And I like what you said, even more specifically, learn about leadership, learn about leading people, change management, which is one of the hardest things. Any other advice on change management or how to help, let's say you're on a small team, a large team, you're a leader, you're a manager, how to help your team kind of come along when we're trying to iterate in a fast paced world. So you need to communicate and communicate and communicate through multiple channels. You know, these days it's through Slack, even more than email, but maybe it's Slack and email and all hands meeting with the company and one-on-ones. You just need to keep communicating. And communication is two-way, right? So you want to sell the change and sell the mission, what you're working on, and get feedback and then refine your pitch. And the more you communicate and the more you listen, the better your storytelling will be. We should talk about storytelling too, because that's actually one of the main, main uh, important skills of an entrepreneur. But so change is around communication. And then the other thing around change is around the confidence of the leader, people will follow your confidence. I mean, I've sometimes said people will follow your confidence, but they'll be loyal to your vulnerability. Oh, I don't, I don't know if I've thought through that fully, but I at least like the tagline. Tell me about that one. Yeah. So confidence is important. And unfortunately, confidence sometimes goes too far and turns into arrogance. This is one of the things that social media likes portraying sort of the the asshole CEOs sometimes. Yes. And I hate that they like telling that story. And it's sad that it is true that some CEOs and leaders are jerks. But confidence is a good thing, right? Hopefully not arrogance. Hopefully there's confidence with vulnerability. And if you sell change to your organization and you do it in one-on-ones and group meetings and email and Slack and everything else, but you're really confident in this decision if you have a good track record and people know you care about them and they know that you've been transparent about your values and you have integrity that you execute consistently with that, people will follow you. So it's important to be to have that confidence. I've seen some leaders, particularly new managers, who are really bright. They're really good at their jobs, individual and then they become a manager and they be, they get imposter syndrome and they become really insecure and they apologize all the time. They're self-deprecating all the time, you know, to because they feel awkward that now they're the boss. So they try to, they try this fiction where they say, well, we're really equals. And if you do that too much, no one will follow you. 
So I think the confidence part is important. So I want to talk about that and then the vulnerability. And I'll tell you what you said really hit home. I just took over um, on this project team. And we are equals because although I'm managing the project, I don't manage them. And after about a month or two of managing it, I was talking to somebody and I said, well, it's hard for me to tell people that I need this done or need that done because you all have been doing this project for two years. I just took over as the, the project manager a couple months ago. And the person on the other line looked at me and she just goes, you need to tell people. That was it. Just, just, you need to tell people. It was almost as if, I don't know this to be the case, but there had been side conversations. Like, I wish you would just make a decision, you know? And it really, it, it allowed me to have that confidence because I do know what I'm doing. It's, I don't know if they appreciate the delivery of it. When we talk about vulnerability, we talk about confidence. How do leaders, formal or informal leaders, find the line between like, I want to lead you, but I want to do it in the best way possible. I respect you. This is not authoritarian, you know, because it's hard to say, I need you to go do this task. That's hard. Yeah. I think if people, you know, people put into leadership or put into those roles for a reason, there was something that their boss saw in them, something they've delivered that has indicated sort of a capability for leadership. And or at least if you're a good executive, the people you put into management positions themselves have good track records. And if you do have a good track record, you've been successful with something, you need to have confidence in that success. And if people see it, they will follow you like they'll follow your confidence. I mean, you should always show excitement. One lesson I learned from Scott Cook, who I worked for at Intuit, he said every meeting should end with more energy than it began with. And part of being a leader is storytelling and excitement and, and painting a picture for people. So they see, what are you really trying to achieve? Like, what is, what's the, what's the vision look like? Like, what does a home run look like? And you get people excited about that. And then they want to participate. They want to play. They want to be on the team because if they think this team's going to win the Super Bowl, they'll come out of retirement. And now a quick word from one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by Fundrise. In 2021, a truly diversified portfolio needs more than the traditional mix of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. It needs private real estate. Studies have shown that portfolios with an allocation to private real estate generally delivered a better risk-adjusted return with more annual income and lower volatility over the past two decades thanks to its track record of consistent performance through multiple market cycles. With Fundrise, this level of powerful diversification is now available to you. Fundrise provides access to diversified portfolios of private real estate to all investors with their industry-leading, easy-to-use platform. Whether you're looking to add stable cash flow via dividends or prefer long-term growth through appreciation, Fundrise makes investing in private real estate as easy as investing in stocks, bonds, or mutual funds. Fundrise's team of real estate professionals carefully vets and actively manages all of their real estate projects. And with their easy-to-use website, you can track your portfolio's performance and watch as properties across the country are acquired, improved, and operated via dynamic asset updates. See for yourself how 130,000 investors have built a better portfolio with private real estate. It takes just a few minutes to get started. Go to fundrise.com smart today. That's F-U-N-D 
R-I-S-E dot com slash smart. One last time, that's fundrise.com slash smart. And now back to the episode. How have you managed to do that? I mean, entrepreneurship is hard, or at least starting a company that lasts, that is profitable, that is well-run, I think is probably pretty hard. I'm asking you, maybe I'm wrong. But then think about the early days. How do you sell a vision confidently that you know has a significant chance of not coming true? Yeah, and I think you have to be honest with people that most startups fail. But entrepreneurs get excited about that. And if you say that, you know, like a kayak, when I recruited people to join the team, we pitched the vision. My co-founder was Steve Hafner. He was the CEO and I was the CTO. And Steve and I would pitch the vision to people we were trying to hire. And they thought, this is crazy. How can you compete with Expedia who spends a billion dollars a year in advertising? There's no way anyone's going to ever, ever hear of this company, Kayak. And we said, yeah, the odds are stacked against us. But if we form the right team and we have the right vision, something that is unique and compelling, and we execute the hell out of it, we have a chance of being really successful here. And we want people who want that. We want people who have that hunger to be an underdog and to, and to operate at a speed much faster than the incumbents execute. Yeah, I like what you're saying there. It's almost have confidence that the reason you're doing it is worthwhile, beneficial, can make change, all of that, with the understanding that I can't promise success, but I can promise I'll do everything to work towards that success yeah, and then exactly. allow them to choose. Yeah, exactly. I, as you mentioned, Kayak, I, I hadn't thought of this question. Going into it, trying to compete with Expedia, why you thought you would win. And if I could take one guess, because I've used it so much, there are two things that mandated I, I, I use Kayak, basically. And I've tried like Hipmunk, right? We interviewed Alexis Ohanian. I, you know, I've tried that. I tried them all. One is it's clean. Like Expedia or all the other ones, I feel like there's just so much stuff going on maybe I'm wrong. It's been a while since I used them, but ads and like different options, a billion different things I could book when I'm like, I'm here. I just need a flight. That's one. And two is the options were the exact options I needed, like the search criteria in the simplest way. So I need it direct. I can give you one day here flexibility, but not here. I can only fly these airlines. For me, the time was a big issue. Because I would leave somewhere at 6 p.m., right? And I'd have, like, it was very time constrained. So I could move all the sliders in the right place. So it was the search capability and the simplicity. Yeah, I love your description. It's, you know, the way we funded the company was we told the venture capitalist, Joel Cutler, a general catalyst, who I consider really almost like a co founder of Kayak. He was really uh, instrumental, particularly in the early years. But what we sold Joel on was we're going to be a pure search engine. We're not going to be a merchant like Expedia. We're going to show all the content from the web, every flight, every hotel. And when people find the flight they want, we're going to send you right to American Airlines and you can buy it there. Like we're not the merchant. We're going to, we're totally transparent. That was the original vision. However, it's interesting to me that that's not what you described. In fact, what you did describe is how I thought about Kayak. So the first time when Steve gave me the pitch, when I met him, I liked him a lot. We became fast friends and decided to you know, jump in as co-founders. 
Um, I went on Expedia that night. I knew they were the market leader. I said, let me just see what I'm up against here. I think I only spent like literally probably like 10 minutes on Expedia. And I took a look at it and I said, this is epileptic seizure inducing. Yes. There's so much stuff on this website. And so then I sent an email to Steve and I said, yeah, I just checked out Expedia. This is not going to be hard. And wow. the goal was just extreme simplicity. And I love white space. And over the years, I mean, I left Kayak five years ago now. Uh, and Kayak has added more and more features and the pages are a little bit more complicated now than they were in the early days. But we really focus on speed and cleanliness and use of white space. And then also giving people surgical precision about, again, like I'm leaving at 6 p.m. You need to know the exact time. We, we built Kayak largely for ourselves. I mean, I travel a lot and I wanted the tool that I never had to go to another website. We had a, a premise early on at Kayak. There's a woman who worked for me, uh, Julie Melbourne, and she used to race cars on the weekends. She'd travel all over the place. And one, she was telling me about one of her races down in Connecticut. And I said, where did you stay? And she said, such and such hotel. And I said, you booked it on Kayak, right? And I was just joking. And she said, no. I said, are you kidding me? You're like one of our lead engineers. Why didn't you book it on Kayak? And she said, well, they didn't have the hotel closest to the racetrack. I found one somewhere else. And so that upset me. And then I began this project that's an internal project at Kayak. We, I don't think we ever use this phrase publicly, but we started this project. We called it EHO, Every Hotel on Earth. And I became obsessed that we're going to hunt down every single hotel, every single lodging type. And if someone ever finds lodging outside of Kayak that's not inside of Kayak, we do whatever it took to get them signed up. Wow. So we have something called the EHO console, every hotel on earth, where we pull in data from like dozens and dozens and dozens of different sources to try to discern truth about what's the accurate info for this hotel. If Expedia calls it one thing and Priceline calls it something else. So we have a whole console and machine learning system to try to have the most accurate hotel info in the world. And that began with Julie staying at a hotel she found elsewhere. Well, the honesty there, right? Like, I don't know how many lead engineers would say that to their CTO, to their boss. So there's one. The other is I could already see what you're saying about storytelling. So we didn't just say, oh, let's fix that problem. Let's get better. We said, nope, here's the tagline, right? Every hotel on earth. So we've got this large mission and it just, that instantly does become something that I would buy into as opposed to, hey, engineers, we need you to find more hotels. Yeah. It's just, it's not the same thing. So let's practice what you preach. I want to go back to uh, getting back to this. I, I love what you said there. I love kayak and you're a serial entrepreneur. So there's things about it that I want to pick your brain on. One is you mentioned you're always interested in the new shiny object. You've got that shiny object syndrome. I'm glad you said that because I feel very similarly. And I have been indoctrinated through, I think, a lot of social media books, things like that, that good entrepreneurs can't have that. Good entrepreneurs have the ability to focus on one thing at the expense of everything else. How do you feel about that? I think the most creative people that I've ever met all have a little bit of ADD. And what I mean by that is when a customer says one thing, it triggers an idea. And the customer might say, I couldn't find the hotel close to the racetrack. But then it triggers an idea saying, okay, how do we make sure that we have every hotel everywhere? And how do you get, how do you deal with conflicting info? Because travel is very messy and there's a lot of conflicting info out there. 
every site has different information about the same property, for example. And one statement will trigger different ideas. And I look at that as a bit of ADD where just kind of how that works. And I think it's almost required on the team that you have people that are, that think like that, that are very expansive, that can take something simple and improve it and think of something better. At the same time, if your whole company is filled with that, it might be a problem. So there needs to be a balance of really good operations people as well. So you need to have a balance in the founding team. Like Steve was way more disciplined than I was at Kayak. He was, he had an incredible memory and he was ruthless for um, focus and execution. And there were a few side projects we had at Kayak that Steve killed and said, you know, please don't work on that because we got to focus on the core thing. Like on Flight Search was the first product. And at times, I think I wish I would have pursued some of those side projects. They ended up being really big ideas by other companies. But it was probably good that we focused at Kayak because we wanted to make flight search and hotel search really the best we possibly could. And if we had taken on too many projects, particularly in the early years, I probably would have suffered from that. So I guess in essence, I'm thinking, I think you need two type of people. You need some creative people that are expansive and maybe a little bit ADD and always think of the new thing, the new idea. And then you need sort of someone who's very strong operationally. Okay, so it gets back to that idea of balance the strengths on a team. Yeah. And I know I've read that you talk about, but you're also well known for the ability to build strong teams. What do you think is the recipe? I'm assuming that's one of them. What's the recipe for creating the teams that will get you to that vision? If I think about my criteria for hiring, when I meet people, first of all, the main rule is just always be recruiting, like always. Um, when you meet someone, and this isn't just for business, they say you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, right? So the, if you want to change your life, change who you hang out with. And I'm not saying that you should choose people that aren't like good people because they have the skills you need. Because if you want to hang out with moral people, that should be one of your criteria. But just always be recruiting, always be interested in hearing new names and trying to figure out who'd be an interesting person to hang out with, to go drink beers with, or to work with, or start a company with. And so if you're always networking, I don't really like the term networking, but it's probably in fact what I'm doing when I'm meeting people and talking about the best people they ever work with. So just always be recruiting. And then when you find someone, let's say you mention a woman who ran marketing at your last company and how awesome she was. I, I have this competitive thing where a clock starts ticking as soon as you mention her name. Maybe you haven't even mentioned her name yet. You just said, wow, you wouldn't believe this woman we had who ran marketing. She completely changed branding in our industry. As soon as you say that, I'm thinking like, I need to meet with this woman. Like ah. I need to have coffee with her. I need to meet her. And the clock starts ticking where I got to get a meeting with that person. So I want to just be really relentless about recruiting and meeting people. And then there's a whole formula about how you bring them in, what storytelling looks like, who do you have on the interview team, how do you interview, how do you decide, what are your criteria? And for me, like personally, I have four criteria. It's bandwidth, attitude, experience, and lack of dysfunctional behavior, which I can describe in a minute. But bandwidth <laughs> that's like, that's is just- That's an interesting fourth one, I gotta yeah. say. Bandwidth is just, you want people who are fast and can juggle and 
move quickly and do many things at once. Just someone who's really fast. Attitude is team focused, win focused, um, have some humility, curiosity. It's things around just hunger for a team producing something. And there's ways you can tease that out during the interview. Experience, what I'm looking for particularly is someone who has experience that I don't have. Mm. Someone who comes maybe from an industry that I have never worked in. Or they come from a part of the world that I haven't been to. Or they have a different educational story than mine. I want someone who's been successful, but maybe successful in a different way than I have. And it's that diversity of experience, I think, that builds a really healthy company. What do you say to the person who is younger? I know you do uh, lecture and things like that. Who wants to work at a kayak, wants to work with you, wants to work with an entrepreneur, somebody they admire, but they can't point to a winning track record yet. So what I would say, if someone's trying to build their resume. Hey, everyone, Chris here, just jumping in really quick. If you're excited to hear the answer to this question, you're going to have to tune in to our brand new podcast that we're launching next month. Now, why this question? Why did I stop here? Well, this is a very tactical question about how you get from where you are to where you want to go. What experiences do you need? What mindset do you need in place? What network do you need to build? These are the types of things we're covering in our new podcast, which is all about getting you from where you are to where you want to go so you can live a life you're proud of. Make sure you don't miss out and be part of the launch. Sign up at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash new to join us in this launch and help us in our newest podcast. Smartpeoplepodcast.com slash new. Be part of the launch. All right, jumping forward in our interview, and we'll get back to our conversation with Paul. I have to ask this. You mentioned you have ADD. How can you do it? How, how do you focus? How do you focus on every pixel with also having the things you mentioned, like shiny object? Because I think you're speaking to so many of us with this, right? A lot of interests. That's why you would listen to this show. You wouldn't listen if you didn't weren't interested in a lot of things. A lot of interest, but the thing you pick, the one thing, make it great. How do you figure that out and then dive in and do that? Yeah. So the one thing I pick my projects based on the people around me, can I get people to work on this project? People that inspire me, that I that I can learn from. And then when you have that team, and this, this could be a side project that you're working on the weekends, but when you have those people that excite you, that work on it, perfection can be something you work, you iterate with other people and you, you can almost make it a game. How can we make this better? How can we make this simpler? How can we make this faster? So the designer that I've had the most success and the most fun with is a guy named Lincoln Jackson. And we designed Kayak together. He's the head of design at Kayak, and now he's the head of design at Lola, um, my day job. And he is a bit OCD, as am I. And we both get like physically uncomfortable when we see things that aren't lined up, like with bad typography. And um, it's amazing how much we'll fight. Back at Kayak, <laughs> we used to fight so much about pixels and alignment and font sizes and number of colors on a, on a screen. I had a rule for there's only so many colors you could have on a screen. But we used to fight so much about the pixels. At one point, he did something particularly masterful. And um, 
I ordered new business cards for him with his t- his title that I gave him was Bitfucker, because he obsessed over every bit on the page. <laughs> I love it. Tell me you referred to him as that, like in the hallways. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the cards he handed out for years. Oh my god, that's so good. It's really good advice, though. I think you know the one thing I'm taking away is also you have to balance your strengths. You know, fi- you're I and I know if you read a lot of articles about you, it's like the people you built around you, the teams you built around you, the mentorship, it's all about surrounding yourself in the right environment. And it's so amazing how many times that mentality comes out from really successful people. I just interviewed Melissa Bernstein. I interviewed a former CEO of this multi-billion dollar healthcare company, Tony Shea, just Simon Sinek, a bunch of these people. It's, it's about who you surround yourself with, but then couple it with some of the other things you've talked about. Got a couple of minutes left. There's Here's my plan of attack. I've got two listener questions, and then I want to talk about Moonbeam. Um, Jessica asked, my question is about how you build what are described as amazing teams. We've talked about this. Uh, what are the things you look for when hiring? We've talked about this. Do you make most of your decisions based on the applicant's work product, history, or resume? Or is it about the applicant as an entire person? So their values and things like that. So we'll, we'll go with that one. Uh, that's such a great question. I would say there's two things I look at, maybe three things. One is who referred this person to me? And do I trust that referral? Referrals are really important in hiring. So who made the referral and do I trust them if they make good referrals before? The second is when I look at the resume, and I don't mean literally resume, quote unquote, but when I look at their history, I want to see they've done something that looks interesting they, and it could be, again, it could be a side project, but I want to see that they have some, something cool about their past. I'm very, I'm a big fan. If you're trying to build a really good team, I'm a big fan of putting athletes or musicians on the team because those are people by definition who've been trained over years and years and years to execute in a team environment. So I look for people that have worked on teams and have done something, some interesting project But then during the interview, I do want to make sure that they have something I call arrogant humility, which is if they've been successful and they're bright, they're going to have like some extreme confidence to say, I know I'm a good designer. I know I'm good at whatever. And you want someone who has confidence because, again, people follow confidence. Every hire you make is someone who could transform the culture of your company. So you want someone who's going to bring something to the table and that you think is charismatic and the people will follow. So I look for that confidence. But I also look for curiosity um, and humility. And I think those two go hand in hand. You want someone who's confident in their skills, but also is hungry to learn and wants to work with people who have skills they don't have. So they want to learn from other people. And we've done um, a really good job at this at Lola with hiring people who come to us with confidence and something about their past that they were successful at but also who are hungry to advance their skills and to accelerate their skills. So I guess that's what I look for. And now a quick break for this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. Small businesses have always shown an incredible ability to adapt, innovate, and survive, even more so this past year. Now, another way you can adapt and grow is by finding the right people to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs can help you do that for free. Personally, I've made some of my best professional connections on LinkedIn, and with access to the best talent with the skills you need, 
LinkedIn Jobs can surely help find somebody for your growing business. Get started by posting your job for free to reach LinkedIn's network of 740 million professionals. Fill out targeted screening questions to get your role in front of the most qualified candidates with the experience, skills, and motivation you need. Then with simple filtering and management tools, you can easily review, rate, and hone in on your top candidates. LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person for your role. And your first job post is free. That's right. Your first job post is free. Just visit linkedin.com slash smart. Again, that's linkedin.com slash smart to post your first job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode. That's fantastic. Quick follow-up to that. Do you think that translates to all industries? Sometimes I feel like things like engineering and design, right? It's the modern day gold rush or finance. I don't know, however you want to call it, right? It's just like, if you can build things on the computer, you can do everything today. So do you think it translates though to all industries, this idea of, you know, the curiosity, the the humble arrogance, which I love, those types of things? Yeah. I mean, I think about friends who work in other industries. That's a good question. I'll have to ask friends of mine. Um, I think in general, confidence, charisma, storytelling, that's all important in any industry. And I hope that curiosity is important in every industry, maybe more so in entrepreneurship than working for some really massive company. I do think it's less of a requirement in massive companies, right? There, yeah. There is, you also need, because the people who are super curious and want to figure out things out and kind of get messy and build stuff on the side, oftentimes, not always, are slightly averse to safety and um, process and rules. Thank you. Yes. Okay. Um, next question. Do you think that you would have become a serial entrepreneur and philanthropist if you hadn't been a programmer? So in other words, what is the quality that you think makes you who you are as a business person? That's a, such a good question. I also wonder what I would do as a career had I not learned programming. And I, I was a self-taught programmer, but then did go to school and studied music and computers. So I do have a degree in computer science, but if I was not a programmer, so what skill? I think probably the biggest skill I've had that has helped me be successful at each of my companies is the constant recruiting for talent. And I think if you learn that act of storytelling so you can get people excited and you're always looking for people that you can learn from, I think that's the core skill that makes someone a successful entrepreneur. Can you tell a story? Can you get people excited? And are you hungry to always find exceptional people? I'm going to learn storytelling a little bit better. I love it because the way you put it too, I think I thought of it as self-promotion, but storytelling is not. It's I've got this vision. Who wants to come along? I think about Simon Sinek because he said something along those lines that's resonated, which is leaders aren't, I forget the first part of it. He's like, but leaders are the people who will go first and inspire everyone else to come with them. All right. So we've only got a couple minutes left, but I want to spend all of it, maybe a little bit more. On your newest venture, your your passion project, you mentioned Moonbeam.fm. Tell us a little bit about that. So what is it first and why are you building it? Because there are plenty of apps out there. Yeah. So I um, am obsessed with podcasts. I've listened to podcasts for over 10 years. And 
I have never been satisfied with any of the podcast players. One, they just have stupid bugs. Like they don't sort episodes the right way by default. Like what is up with that? There's just a lot of little irritating things about Spotify and about Apple Podcast Player. Those are the two market leaders that I just find irritating. They just I just don't think they have a good design. And then there's two specific problems I want to work on. One is discovery. How do you find out about a show? How do you find a show for the first time? And the second one is when you do find a show that you really like, what is the relationship between the host and the listeners? Right now, there's no relationship. I think it should be a discussion. I think there should be a relationship. I want to find a way to let the host and the listeners engage directly. And it could be everything from certainly having threaded discussions right in the podcast app. So you and other listeners can talk about the podcast and the host can chime in and answer your questions ongoing because there's a podcast that gets recorded and published, but then people listen to it and then conversations happen. A lot of podcast hosts set up Facebook groups or other Discord servers, but why not build that directly into the app to let that relationship? How about can people join the email list for your show with one click? Can they just like in Moonbeam, if I'm listening to smart people and I say, this, this guy, Chris, is really cool. I want, not only do I want to listen to his show, I want to get his newsletter. I should have clicked one button and get in your newsletter. If I'm inspired by your show, I should have to click a button and send a dollar to your or $10 to your show or to a nonprofit that you support. If you recommend something, let's say there's, a, there's an author that you've had on your show before and you, you think he has an amazing book. Like you mentioned Tony Shea a couple of times. He was a, a big influence to me as well. And his book was amazing. And maybe if you talk about Tony, shouldn't someone be able to click one button in the podcast player and have his book, Delivering Happiness, show up at the door the next day? So what are all the tools that let the host and the listeners have a relationship and interact with each other? So it's about discovery and interaction. You're speaking my language. Like, I, why doesn't this exist, though? I don't get it. I mean, people said that when I created Kayak. Um, if... If you think you have a good idea, Expedia will just do it. Why haven't they done it? But I think sometimes it just takes an entrepreneur who's really committed. And for Moonbeam, the first release comes out in May. We're probably going to fuck it up. Like the first release probably won't be perfect, but I'm committed. Like I want to fix this problem. I want to make podcasts an interactive, an interactive experience. And I'm not going to give up until we're successful. So we're going to do fast cycles. There'll be a new release every week. And eventually we're going to we're going to figure it out. I think the first release actually is pretty good. I hope when your listeners download the app. And again, you can sign up on the waiting list right now at moonbeam.fm. But I hope even your very first experience, you'll say, whoa, this is different than other players I've experienced before. Well, I'll tell you, just based off what you said, I'm absolutely going to try to build our community there. Because it's all problems we have been kind of piecemealing together. We built a web page for it. We did Patreon for it, but it's, we're trying our best, but it's asking a lot of a listener who's driving in their car to, to remember to sign up for a newsletter where when they stop at a stoplight, they can just click the button. You know what I exactly, mean? Exactly. I've thought about doing texting, you know, we text and re respond to this, but why should it be that way? That's the difficulty. Right. Well, Paul, okay. So can we, we can go sign up for the waitlist for that now? Yes. Moonbeam.fm. Moonbeam.fm. 
All right. Anything anywhere else we can find you? I went to your website. It cracks me up, by the way. I love I love how you did it. It's the most tech entrepreneur thing I've ever seen. But um, <laughs> and you're active on Twitter, aren't you? I am. What's yeah, your my, um, what's your Twitter handle? My Twitter is English Paul M. English Paul M. Well, Paul, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for sharing all this knowledge. I know uh, those listening will be inspired by this. So thanks so much. Awesome. It's been great talking to you, Chris. You too. And that was our interview with Paul English. Hope you enjoyed it. As it was mentioned at the top of the show, you can check out Moonbeam FM. It is a podcast curated moments app, so you can sign up to get early access and claim your podcast over there. And now on to the quick housekeeping items. If you ever want to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you'd like to support the show monetarily, head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And if you're looking for a free and easy way to support the show, just send the podcast over to friends or family that you think would enjoy the show. And if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, sign up for the newsletter. And if you're interested in the new podcast that we have coming out, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash new and you'll get all kinds of great updates about the upcoming launch. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we'll see you next episode.